the Archbishop of Carthage, who was a bishop during the first imperial persecution, uh, empire-wide imperial persecution in the Roman Empire. Now, there have been cases of emperors participating in persecutions before, such as Marcus Aurelius authorizing the uh, persecution of, in Gaul, of, but remember, that was a local persecution of the people in the towns where the Christians were, were angry with them and started uh, uh, persecuting them locally, and then they got the emperor's permission to kill the Christians. This is a case where <clears throat> the first time an emperor <clears throat> sort of sets a policy to try to eradicate Christianity uh, across the whole empire. <clears throat> Cyprian, as a person, fits into uh, the general category of the what we had been calling the apologists, that is, these uh, wealthy or well-educated Roman uh, pagans who <clears throat> convert to Christianity and then from their kind of position within the uh, Roman world then turn around to sort of address the Roman world regarding the church. The difference, uh, several differences with uh, Cyprian is that he's the, the first one that I can think of uh, who, offhand, that uh, became an archbishop or a bishop most of the time we're looking at Justin the Philosopher, or uh, Origen, or Alexandria. They were uh, first; they were teachers, but somehow teachers particularly aimed at the uh, pagan world itself. In other words, so they they were from the pagan world. They came into the church, and then they acted in, as missionaries back to the pagan world, and generally. Uh, they didn't seem to have a very large role within the church, except perhaps in a catechetical uh, fashion, or, or as again, as a missionary fashion. With Cyprian, uh, we have one of these people who, uh, he was a very well-educated, very wealthy uh, person from a pagan family. He uh, was very uh, prominent as, for his uh, speeches. He, is said to have been a lawyer and perhaps involved in, in the local government in Carthage, but he uh, who converted to Christianity. And so uh, in his conversion, again, you have this sort of prominent person coming into the church, but now uh, this prominent person, very shortly after his conversion, which was in 246, uh, he was ordained a priest, and then uh, there was a... Uh, an election for a bishop, and by the acclamation of the people, he was made bishop. Interestingly, uh, not with the total support of the priesthood. The priests actually don't seem to have, a number of priests did not really want him to be bishop, uh, feeling that someone who had just uh, converted and uh, was not, had not really been a part of the church for very long, all of a sudden, how could this person then be, become our bishop? And, and, uh, in this case, a bishop of a very important city, and died. And so, uh, perhaps reflecting why, in general, the apologists in the past never were the bishops, because they were, uh, in a sense, coming from the outside, and their main, their their uh, contribution to the church was to allow the church to speak to that outer world. But here, Partly, maybe because of Cyprian's character, that he was uh, very well loved for his generosity and his uh, kindness that 
that uh, people saw him perhaps more in the role of, of let's say, as a, as a secular magistrate coming into the church rather than as a as a philosopher. He was not particularly uh, involved with Greek philosophy at all. In that sense, he follows much more closely in the tradition of, of Tertullian, who immediately preceded him in uh, in Carthage, and was a, was a kind of, Tertullian was a lawyer who never actually didn't like philosophy, and so was in a way completely uh, opposite to the most of the Christian apologists who were, were using philosophy as that bridge back to the pagan world. And Cyprian is more in that tradition than the, the typical apologist tradition. Uh, after Cyprian's <coughs> conversion, very, he becomes bishop, and then the next year after he becomes bishop, there's this uh, persecution which is known as the Decian persecution after him, or Decius. The church, <coughs> from the time of uh, the early apologists, had mostly, the last sort of major persecution had been under Marcus Aurelius in the 170s, and then you have a long period with the pretty peaceful, and this is because of the success of the apologists in convincing educated Roman opinion to accept the church as at least uh, one way of fulfilling sort of this uh, philosophical ideas about one God and uh, living a, a kind of righteous life. But the, uh, well, and I should say that the the ex extent of that success uh, went so far that Christians, uh, that even uh, sometimes the emperors and their families were in contact with the Christians. And Origen, Origen uh, is alive at the time when Cyprian becomes bishop. And he uh, had been in correspondence with, uh, or actually visited uh, with the mother of one emperor, uh, uh, of the Severan dynasty, and then uh, he was in corresponding with another emperor called uh, Philip the Arabian, who Philip the Arabian was from a little town uh, just east of the Sea of Galilee, uh, right in sort of our biblical world, and he <coughs> he and his wife corresponded with Origen, and there is a story that they were. Uh, that Philip was forbidden from coming to the Paschal Vigil by one of the bishops in the East because of his implication in the murder of his predecessor. And some people have sort of drawn from that that perhaps Philip may have been Christian. It's unclear if he was. It was Christian in an odd way because he also, as emperor, uh, participated in the, uh, the thousand-year anniversary of the Roman Empire with all these sacrifices to all the pagan gods, and so as as Roman Emperor, he was sacrificing to everybody, <laughs> and so he did, obviously could not be a Christian in the conventional sense. Uh, more likely, he was an educated person who, or at least a person who had sympathy with uh, Christianity and was interested in Christianity, but not uh, not what we would call a member of the church, perhaps, but. Uh, this uh, this person was the emperor immediately before Decius. So, at the time when Cyprian comes in, you have an emperor who is 
very sympathetic. He has the uh, the empire is in a lot of trouble at this time because the uh, in Persia the Sasanians had taken over from the Parthians and they were much more warlike and they began attacking the Roman Empire. You have uh, the Ostrogoths come down attacking and the Franks over in Gaul, and the, the empire was in a lot of uh, stress from military attacks. And certainly <laughs> in this stress, there were also some rebellions by the troops. And the uh, Emperor Philip had sent the Senator Decius up to uh, the Danube area to try to quell some revolts and, and uh, beat back the Goths that were attacking. And the troops in the area decided that they liked Decius and so that they would make him emperor. And so Decius came back to Italy with that army. And uh, in 249, Philip the Arabian was killed in the Battle of Verona, uh, and Decius became emperor. Now, so the emperor, now Decius having uh, killed Philip and since taken over, uh, usurped his position, uh, does not have the same policy towards the Christians. He's not uh, the sympathetic type. He decides that what's wrong with the empire is that it's gotten away from its uh, taken heritage. So he orders uh, everyone in the empire to sacrifice to the pagan gods. And at this time, you also have the cult of the uh, the emperor himself. It's unclear uh, whether this was uh, including himself or it was just to, to worship the, the traditional gods. So he orders uh, empire-wide sacrifices. Now, because of this, uh, a lot of people were arrested, and the Cyprian, who had just been come to Archbishop of Carthage, uh, goes into hiding to not be arrested and be able to run the church. But he, wa he wants to continue guiding the church in Carthage, but he's living, he's hiding out in the farms somewhere in the countryside. So in order to continue to run things, uh, he had to write letters. And so we had, during uh, about a one-year period, he wrote a lot of letters uh, to uh, keep administering the church. These letters have all uh, been preserved uh, and collected, and we have them. And it's one of the kind of remarkable uh, benefits to us sort of as a, historically, as historians, let's say, because although we kind of, we know a lot about, you know, we're talking about church history, we seem to know a lot about what's going on. What we really know is what was written down. And we know, like, uh, who's the, you know, who taught what and what their theology is. And so we definitely don't have much of a picture of what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis in the church and what just exactly was life like. And this is so, in uh, 250, all of a sudden we have this window that opens up to uh, a very minute picture of everything that was going on uh, for one year in one archdiocese. <laughs> and so it's a great uh, thing if you just are interested to see, well, what, what, what was the church like at that time, third century? His letters are available in the um, this uh, anti-Nicene father set that Erdman's has republished, uh, as well as his works are in here. Uh, that's the volume that contains uh, Cyprian and a number of other writers from third century. 
And then uh, the blue Ancient Christian Writer series by Newman Press, uh, or Paulus Press, I guess, that is the, has the uh, very nice four-volume four edition of his letters with lots of notes. So it's, uh, if you want to do a study of it, it's a great, great thing. But uh, beside that, what's <coughs> some other sort of uh, significant things came up during this time. The first was the the picture of the uh, the uh, persecution itself tells us a lot about what life in the church was like, and that was first off that the church was very widely accepted and pretty pervasive in uh, the, the society before the persecution begins, and so the Christians are well known and fairly open about uh, who they are. At the time, so we did. So sometimes we're looking back through the persecution, especially the great persecutions at the end. We tend to imagine that through the whole first 300 years, everybody was uh, hiding out and living in catacombs or something. But uh, mostly that wasn't true. Mostly the church just lived in, in a society in an accepted way. And later on in the great persecution, you know, the, one of the things that was lamented about that was that all the great churches um, sometimes, you know, right, right in prominent places in the city were all being destroyed. So uh, they weren't worshiping in, in catacombs. They had, they had you know, uh, public churches and, and uh, cathedrals just like now. The second thing was that at, by uh, 250, the church had become uh, somewhat worldly. And Cyprian <laughs> wrote, two, he wrote a number of books, but one of the two most famous ones was called On the Lapsed. And in this book, he describes the persecution and what happened, and, and one of the things he, can, he says is that he feels the persecution was sent as a punishment by God to the Christians because of their worldliness that the, the, any of the clergy had uh, taken on secular jobs uh, and secular responsibilities, at businesses. The uh, other was that the, they tended to uh, be fighting that the Christians themselves had become very similar to the pagan people around them in the way that they lived their lives and uh, and behaved themselves. So that uh, Cyprian saw the the persecution as sort of a chastisement by sent by God to uh, admonish the Christians to stop living uh, in such a worldly way. The second thing that we find is that when the uh, persecution takes place where everyone is okay, ordered that they all have to sacrifice now to pagan gods, that uh, many of the uh, Christians went along with this in, in several ways. Uh, what Cyprian complains about is that a number of Christians immediately, as soon as the order came out, all trooped down to the town hall to and got online to sacrifice, and that when, you know, the Magistrates wanted to go home for the evening. They said, no, no, you know, don't make me wait till tomorrow. Keep open the office so we can make sure to get this all done today. So uh, <laughs> they were so anxious to, uh, you know, get themselves out of being arrested that they kind of forced the magistrates to let them sacrifice. And then uh, the other uh, thing that they were doing was, uh, in order, one way you could avoid having to sacrifice was you had to just have you just had to have a certificate that said that you sacrificed. So if they could bribe one of the uh, officials to get give them a certificate, 
then they would have the certificate and, oh, see, I sacrificed them, and they, even though they really never did. And uh, Cyprian's not very, well, he's definitely uh, not very happy with the first group, and he's not happy with the second group either because his feeling is that Christians should be uh, not only not sacrificing to pagan gods, but also not even giving the pretense of, you know, the appearance of sacrificing to pagan gods. That, And you could see that this the attitudes here are quite different than uh, if you were in what class when we discussed the persecutions in 177, which only uh, 80 years earlier, 70 years earlier, uh, the, you know, where the Christians sort of were anxious to... Uh, Face death, you know, where the, the concern was that they wouldn't be able to hold out under the persecution, under the under the tortures, but that their concern was that they be able to die without having betrayed Christ. And here, a large number of the people, their main concern, uh, according to Cipri, was to make sure that they didn't lose any of their property, because they, if they were arrested, they would, you know, would have, might have their property confiscated. And uh, so he. Uh, he felt that you know this represented a, a great uh, disaster that the church the church had declined a great deal in its zeal uh, for uh, the kingdom of God and was mainly had become a, a lot of the people had become concerned with this world so he uh, now has the problem of what to do with the people who have done this and a lot of the uh, the people who who have done it of course felt that well we just had to do that the government ordered us to. We didn't really leave the church, you know. We're not. We're still Christians, and they want to just go on going to communion, and they don't feel like there's anything wrong. But uh, what Cyprian uh, says, well, no, this is you know, if you go to sacrifice the pagan gods, then you're you're uh, excommunicated. You now have to go through penance to be allowed back in the church. And so he wanted to have them kept out of church at least as long as the persecution lasted. He didn't really. He didn't want them just. You know, while everyone else is potentially going to be tortured or put to death, that the guy who went and sacrificed is now back in church going to communion. So he said, "No, you have to be uh, excommunicated." So there came a, a sort of division, and not just in Carthage, but in a number of places in the church. Actually, almost every time a persecution occurred, of what happens to these people, and. The interesting, the priests who uh, didn't want Cyprian and uh, many of the ones who were actually in prison themselves tended to support the people who wanted to come back and said, well, they're sorry, you know, they should come back. This, let's let them back. There's no, there's not really uh, any reason to keep them out. And it didn't help that Cyprian was in hiding someplace off in the, off in the woods, you know, because, well, look, he's not, he's not going to be arrested, sir. He could say, you know, don't you know, don't don't do this. But he's safe. You know, and we're here in the city, and we're going to be killed, and so we have to do this. And and it's not right for him to say we can't, uh, we shouldn't be allowed back in the church. But right away, that's what they want. Right away, he wasn't saying they shouldn't at all. The other side that developed uh, was what we call the novation after the priest who taught this, which who actually was a priest in Rome, uh, the novationist. Uh, policy, which he, uh, in fact, was following Tertullian's uh, thought, which is that that once you commit a mortal sin, that there's no way back. So he took the opposite uh, line, which is sort of that there's no repentance. Um, 
So anyone who uh, apostatized or, uh, as Tertullian earlier said, apostasy, murder, and adultery, that's final. When you do those things, then you are, cease to be a Christian and you, you may never be again. Now, the interesting thing about Cyprian, which I forgot to mention, was that uh, becoming a uh, Christian in Carthage, where Tertullian had died just shortly before, uh, he really read two things uh, as his sort of catechetical books. He read the scriptures and he read the writings of the master, and the master was Tertullian. <laughs> so his uh, theology, in many respects, is, and even some of the books he wrote are just almost kind of uh, copies of, of what Tertullian wrote. The, the uh, interesting and, and very good thing is that Cyprian, despite the fact that Tertullian had become a heretic and <clears throat> fell into exactly this heresy, you see that, that the people who had mortal sins could not return to the church, Cyprian, despite the fact that all he's really reading is Tertullian, from the church, church's own tradition, is able to understand, well, that's, Tertullian wasn't right about that, and he uh, resists that heresy himself. And so that's a kind of a, a good thing is, uh, and to remember for us is that the church carries this tradition, this living tradition within it, and we're not just, uh, let's say, helpless products of whatever particular person is prominent at the time, but that Okay, because we only have the writings of Tertullian, you see, and the writings of Cyprian, but, but there's also the living people in the church that we don't have, that we can't see them. But they kept that tradition of the church pure, despite these, you know, the, that the most prominent writer and the most prominent personality in their church was a heretic. Now, the, the two sides that, uh, that come out of this controversy is, that, or, let's say, two errors that the church ultimately resists, because the church uh, ultimately endorses St. Cyprian on this point, which is that uh, that to deny the possibility of repentance is a heresy. God always uh, wants us to be saved, wants us to repent. So no matter what you've done, you can always repent and come back. You can always be saved. Because God wants that, because that's always a possibility. Now, on the other hand, when uh, something serious like this happens, we can't go the other way and just, well, you know, go on as usual. You see. That the uh, the mortal sins, they, uh, they were um, cutting us off from the church, and the church, in a different way, we could always say, well, sins always, always sins, you know, and we always have to repent from all our, all kinds of sins. But in particular, these uh, types of sins, uh, murder and so on, that uh, they did have a, a kind of special place. In, in fact, at the time of Cyprian, when he's talking about penance, in general, the idea for the immortal sins was that you were had to be a penitent until your deathbed, because you were you were cut off from the church, but you could, if, through repentance, you could be restored before death. So, the. Uh, so there's this, uh, let's say, need for penance. For okay, or for let's we could say for our time maybe we, the term discipline, church discipline, uh, is kind of one we think of. And for the people of that day, uh, church discipline, as I said, extended to death. 
although that could be moderated. And uh, in the case of uh, this case, because the persecution ended in 251, uh, and then it, uh, one year, and then it, and then it started up, looked like it might start up again another, about a year later, uh, Cyprian, having sort of made his point, uh, you know, that these people were excommunicated, he said, okay, one, one year's gone by, we're, we may now face another persecution, let's have all these people come back into the church so that they can be restored before, you know, they're again going to face possibility of death. And this is, uh, I think, the, the church in its canons ultimately moderated uh, this teaching of, of requiring uh, penance till death in by establishing what to us seemed very, because we, we actually tend in our time more towards the other side of just wanting people sort of just in a way uh, that kind of confessions a sort of formality people. So if you go to, uh, you kind of just have to go through that. And so whether you're going to confess that you uh, kicked your dog or, you know, whether you uh, murdered someone, you know, it's, well, it's just some all the same, really. But it's not, that's not where the whole uh, history of the church, you know, comes from in this way. It comes out of the original feeling that perhaps these sins permanently excluded you, and then no, well, they don't permanently, but at death, and then uh, you could come back, and then they had these penances of uh, I think for apostasy, 10 years, murder, 10 years, 8 years for adultery. It's uh, the, These 10-year things were as alternatives to, uh, to a lifetime of excommunication. So they were intended as a way of uh, kind of mercy, you know, to allow a person not to spend their whole life outside the church, especially if it was a young person who committed a sin. But uh, on the, but the other side is that there's no, uh, that it's not inflexible. That Cyprian, uh, you know, go, you know, after sort of demanding that everybody be excommunicated till death, then a year later says, okay, well now, it's, now that's good enough. Everybody come back. Um, the uh, the the bishop is able to make a pastoral decision, and that's not bad. I mean, it doesn't. Oh no, Cyprian didn't, you know, follow the letter of the law. There we have the the, the uh, the penance, it's not the amount of time that is uh, important. It's the repentance and the salvation of the person that's important. And what he, he points out in, in the book On the Last, uh, which he writes about this, is that the ones who were just receiving them back immediately, his fear there was that by having people come back into communion without having truly repented, that that was endangering their salvation because they uh, didn't come to understand the seriousness of what they had done and therefore they just uh, were defiling uh, the mysteries and therefore uh, condemning themselves. So the point of the excommunication was not to fulfill a requirement but to bring a saving repentance to the person so that that person then would uh, approach God in humility and be uh, able to receive forgiveness. Okay. Uh, are there any questions about this? So that's our so our current uh, church teaching is is this combination that we don't we don't uh, deny the possibility of repentance, but we do ask especially for um, 
the serious sins that there is a, a time of repentance in order to uh, ensure our own, basically for our own spiritual well-being. Is there any any questions on that? Okay. There. Yes. Well, I mean, is there? Are you have more to come on about Sophia? Yes. Okay. Cool. Okay. The um, the second uh, thing that kind of controversy, I guess, that came up was that after the uh, persecution was over, a question came up about. Uh, the reception of Gnostics into the church. Okay, so this, and this is important to uh, know where this started. And it was started, it was a place in Africa where the tradition had been that the, that Gnostics were, uh, that the baptism of the Gnostics was just accepted and they were received by the laying on of hands or what, Confirmation in the West or chrismation here. Now, in Carthage, um, it seems that in recent years that the church in Carthage had had adopted the practice of rebaptizing these people. And the question came came to Cyprian from this area said, "Well, we've always just received their baptism. What should we do?" And he said, "Well, oh well, you have to rebaptize them." And his thinking was. That uh, that grace is only in the church. Okay. Therefore, okay. So this is Cyprian. Therefore, no sacraments outside the church. And so he, uh, you know, so that in response to the argument, well, but. But gee, we've always uh, just received them. You know, said, "Well, that's too bad." You know, the use your use your uh, reason and logic demands. Since since the church is where the sac- the grace is coming in the church, uh, if a, someone's baptized outside the church, then logically they can't have any grace because there's grace is only in the church. And so he he uses the uh, principle in one of his letters that sort of uh, that lo- the logic. Of this outweighs the tradition, now uh, in response to this, uh, not everyone agreed with him <laughs> on this point, and that was uh, in, the main respondent was Pope Stephen, who uh, his problem right then was with the novationists. Uh, that is, those who had broken away from the church under his predecessor, uh, because of the question, the, the novation, this, this uh, priest novation had himself elected, sort of an anti-pope, and formed a church in which no repentance was allowed. You know, and so now at Pope Stephen's time, the people in that church are saying, "Well, maybe we'd like to come back to the church." And so Stephen's saying, "Well, of course, you know, okay, you've already those baptized by the Novationists. He accepted their baptism, and he received them by the laying on of hands." And he said, "Well, you know, so Cyprian all of a sudden saying now, no, everybody has to be rebaptized." And uh, Pope Stephen says, "Well, that's not that's not right. That's we've always the his arguments the the ancient tradition, the tradition that goes back to the beginning, is that people." 
Christians who have been baptized outside the church are received by the laying on of hands. They're saved by chrismation. So, uh, again, this tradition. And they, so they end up uh, having a sort of little disagreement about this uh, thing. And this is, uh, it extends over the uh, whole church for a while, and many of all the different hierarchs sort of weighing in on one side or another. But interestingly, uh, the way the argument kind of ends up being, it, it doesn't just, the, the logic of Cyprian would be, okay, if, there's, if something's taking place outside the church, it doesn't have any grace of God, so it, it's meaningless. That doesn't, that argument doesn't seem to get used by anyone. What, what people say, they must say, well, okay, Stephen, if you're going to accept uh, baptisms of heretics, then what about these you know, wildest, craziest Gnostics over here? Uh, if you're accepting every heretical baptism, then obviously you're accepting everything that these people are doing. And it becomes an argument of, well, what are these people like that we're receiving? Uh, and in a way, it reflects the two different situations that this was coming out of. Cyprian was looking at Gnostics. Remember, the Gnostics, if you were in the class, uh, they're the ones who uh, rejected the God of the Old Testament as an evil demon, and are only uh, so. In a sense, they're rejecting uh, the Old Testament God, and they're rejecting, uh, you know, kind of the basics of who we believe Christ is, and uh, that Christ is not human incarnate. He's that he's a son of us, unknown spirit God, and so in many ways, uh, Gnosticism is a lot like paganism. And so to accept the baptism of people who are essentially pagans uh, does sound kind of strange. Whereas Pope Stephen's looking at Novationists, people who are under someone who was a priest in the church who now has disagreed about whether to receive uh, penitence. And uh, he's saying, well, gee, these people are you know, Christians just like us, and we should accept their, should accept their baptism. And the way it works out, although uh, Stephen and Cyprian don't seem to have uh, personally reconciled in their lifetimes, the uh, church, uh, we say they're both saints, and uh, you know sometimes those saints didn't like each other or disagreed with each other, but it's a good thing in a way. I think um, it's not good that they're fighting, but it's maybe good to realize this, that you can have different positions that... The, that the church's tradition and its teachings um, have a lot of different aspects. And sometimes we, today, in trying to apply that tradition, you can look at one part of the tradition and say, well, it should be this way. And someone else looks at another part and says, oh, no, no, it should be this way. And, you know, each can, uh, as Stephen actually did sort of call Cyprian, I think, the Antichrist or something. <laughs> you know, so we, can, we can do that, too. You know, that happens. You know, we get sort of like, oh, those guys over there, those guys are over there, you know, just, uh, they're just really evil and, you know, it's so on. And somehow, uh, you know, somehow both have something, they're both seeing something that's right, actually. And it just takes time for the church to sort of put that together in a new situation, you know, because the church, the church, the tradition comes out of such certain historical situations, and when we're applying it to a new situation, we don't always know exactly how that tradition fits. And so when we have these disagreements, I think it's comforting 
to realize that, you know, it doesn't have to just be, you know, one side's the good guys and one side's the bad guys. That there's a, you know, we should perhaps look to see that there can be right and wrong in both and try to try to weigh the different parts of the tradition. Yes? I've always felt that way about the East and the West, and I, I'm not into the polarized uh, dogmatism and poly- polemics of, of vilifying the West or the East, but one thing is West is accused of is being adaptive to, to over time they adapt. We, the East thinks to a heretical degree, whereas what we're seeing here is even in the East that there's a certain adaptation. I'm, 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 I'm okay. Okay. Um, so anyway, <laughs> so the deal is, um, what about this adaptiveness? We've kind of been yeah. smugly anti-adaptive that we're just the mm-hmm. original faith that didn't get any modification, no evolution, and the Romans mm-hmm. are are uh, adapting supposedly to circumstances and further enlightenment. Well, it's I think it's misleading um, because certainly. Uh, the church uh, did adapt. I mean, as we'll see, you know, these uh, you know, doctrines the developed. Adapted. Right. There's all this, yeah, adaptation to adapt, adaptation to special circumstances, like in the missionary work in Alaska, um, the development of the doctrine and practice. I think the problem with with the West is that uh, the in the in the West you had the emergence of certain heresies, and this, you know, that's why we don't consider. Uh, we don't. Uh, not they talk about themselves as sort of like two sister churches or something. This is not the Orthodox point of view. The Orthodox point of view is that the Roman Catholic Church, by rejecting the Orthodox tradition on certain points, uh, left the Orthodox Church, and so we uh, they would they'll fit into this question, and we'll get to them. But they they fit in in the sense of having gone outside. Now, is that to say that there was nothing good or nothing Christian about anything that ever was done in the West? That's not true. Uh, certainly, uh, they were Christians. I mean, originally they were Orthodox Christians, and then they, as they fell under certain heresies that uh, made church life fall further and further away, but um, insofar as these people were uh, sincere Christians, I'm, I'm sure that much of what they uh, Believed was true, and uh, many of you know good and uh, virtuous things uh, also could come out of them. And so, I guess that says we shouldn't be arrogant and just dismiss other Christians. But on the other hand, we have to recognize where is the church, and I'll I'll get to that point. Um, but I I take your what you're saying there. The uh, now out of this conflict between Cyprian and Stephen, we don't sort of. Uh, pick winners and losers, We what happened is the church, um, some way, saw that both of them had a good point, you know, that there was a problem with receiving Gnostics who essentially did not, were not Christians. Why should their baptism, baptism of people who are not Christians, why should that be accepted? So today, uh, in, well, or in the canons of the, the councils in the fourth century and following, they said, okay, we won't accept those baptisms. But on the other hand, they looked at Pope Stephen and said, well, yes, you're correct also, because people, many of the people who have been separated from the church over various teachings uh, are still Christians, okay, but they have certain tr- teaching that caused them to leave the church. And in that case, we do accept their baptism, and, and we do continue this ancient tradition uh, that, that because the church is, the church is uh, in one way, conservative. We're conservative. We keep... 
we don't agree with the idea that you, I mean, the one thing, this is a problem is that you, uh, there's sort of, some people have defined a heresy as, as a good idea taken to its logical conclusion. Something, some truth, one piece of the truth you, that you just kind of extrapolate on to the exclusion of everything else and you then end up with a, with a heresy. So, um, so while what Cyprian is originally saying may be partly correct, if you just say, okay, well, then let's take that one point and, and take everything else that the church has done and forget about it, we're going to have a distorted uh, position. So the church said, no, we can't throw out the, the ancient tradition, that that tradition reflects something true. And so the reception of other Christians by chrismation reflects some kind of ancient feeling that Christians, uh, even when they're not in the church, are still Christians somehow. And so when we bring them into the church, what we're doing is uh, bringing, the Christ bringing them into, the, into this apostolic continuity of the church. And I will just, uh, to explain it... And they go through a catechesis process. They can, yes. Actually, I mean, ideally, ideally they should. Yes, it depends, uh, historically, but yes, that's, that's correct. If we look at the book of Acts, um, in chapter, uh, I think it's six, but let me, yeah, if I wrote it down. Um, Acts eight, excuse me, with uh, Philip. Um, goes out to Samaria, and he preaches to the Samaritans, and they want to become Christians. He baptizes them. Okay, great. Then the people in Jerusalem hear this, and then they send down someone from the apostles. The apostles come down from Jerusalem, and it's only then that they're able to receive the laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit. Now, so this kind of coming out of this, that uh, it is possible you can be baptized by any Christian to become a Christian, such so by a lay person, in fact, uh, because becoming a Christian only, only that's all it requires is, a, is another Christian. But to become uh, to receive the Holy Spirit through the through the laying on hands or chrismation, you have to that you have to be within this apostolic continuity of the bishops. And it's not even uh, just a physical continuity. Some We have some kind of odd groups that say, well, you know, somebody's brother-in-law was you know, laid hands on so-and-so, and somehow we get back to the apostles. No, it's the uh, laying on of hands, a continuity of the officially accepted uh, representatives preserving the continuity of uh, church tradition that brings to us um, the grace of the Holy Spirit. So we have a kind of idea of uh, sort of the baptism uh, kind of can be by a layman and that sort of is what makes a person Christian. And the chrismation or laying on of hands ultimately comes from the apostles through the bishops. Uh, in your case, uh, uh, father performs the chrismation, he's receiving uh, the blessed uh, chrism from uh, the bishops, patriarchy. from the patriarch even, uh, which is sort of uh, carrying 
this uh, continuity down to us. So then he's, what the chrismation is doing is taking us Christians and bringing us into the church and receiving the Holy Spirit uh, as, from this gift of the apostles, gift of the Holy Spirit to the apostles at Pentecost. It's making us part of that. And uh, that's why uh, we can have sort of this double practice and people you know, kind of wonder about it because of the canons. Sometimes, it, you know, the way the the church seems to address, you know, like they don't talk, they don't talk about a principle. They talk about different people. This little group gets, you know, rebaptized. This little group gets 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 chrismated. And but and some people say, well, that doesn't sound right. You know, if they're not in the church, they go back to Cyprian uh, and say, well, isn't he right that if there are no that there's no grace outside the church, therefore there, there's some I have people in the Orthodox Church will say that well, therefore there can't be any Christians outside the Orthodox Church. All those people in the other churches aren't even Christians because they, they don't have any grace of God. Uh, in fact, there's some famous quote of somebody who said there that every church is unmitigated darkness. Well, this is not, if you look at the canons of the councils, that's not the view of the church. The church, you know, it's all, it can be confusing with there's all these different groups, but, you know, even so that you could say, Sometimes uh, today people will disagree about the details of which group should be chrismated and which group should be baptized. But, but obviously there is a there are two possibilities in the canons. Some are going to be rebaptized and some are going to be chrismated. And in, ge- in general, the principle seems to be that those that are seen as Christians, if you are coming, if you are baptized by a Christian ch- group or uh, the church in the loose sense, you, uh, you, uh, then you can be received into the church by chrismation. If you are uh, baptized by a group which is non-Christian, then you must be rebaptized. So we've got, we've got a category, for instance, of the um, uh, which Pentecostal is that? Um, just right across the street from my house. United Pentecostals. They believe that Christ is the Father, is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. Yes. So they got the Trinity all backed up. We have to baptize them. Yes, because they're not right. uh, Trinitarian Christians. But um, yes, I would say so. Kind of uh, the obvious side, more, you know, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, right. those are groups uh, that we rebaptize. I think everybody rebaptizes them, and then, uh, pardon me. Yeah. On the positive side. I would say typically the Orthodox Church uh, receives uh, Protestants and uh, Roman Catholics by chrismation. Now there is some disagreement about this, but uh, that seems to be the consensus anyway. This, uh, but even that, it's not just in America, but because uh, Russia, that was the standard practice was to receive by chrismation back for many centuries, and I think uh, Saint Elizabeth. The new martyr uh, was received by chrismation, I believe. Holy Mountain are really hard nosed about that. Well, the Greeks, what happened was that uh, they were rebaptizing Catholics because I think of the um, attempt to enforce Roman Catholicism by the sword in the in the Greek Church uh, during the time of the Crusades, and so to them, to many Greeks, it seems like a you know a major change, and so they've a lot of them have argued. That they should keep on rebaptizing, but even some of these, you know, in the books that seem to be advocating that, they also will acknowledge that well, that's not the universal practice, and this is, you know, that was their practice, 
and they're uncomfortable about changing it, but but they understand that in the cans there are these two categories, and and it's just a question of you know how you choose to you know where you think the line should be drawn, and that's what you're saying. There is the decision has as much to do with the condition of the person receiving them as it does the person they're receiving, because if the person receiving them is extraordinarily bitter or feeling a greater depth of estrangement, then they may feel more compelled to rebaptize because of their emotional state and frame of mind, as opposed to the spiritual status of the person coming to them. Well, it could be, I mean, that would be maybe making it sort of uh, subjective, but I guess... Um, I would say the circumstances had an effect, and I, I think in a case where you have uh, people being put to death to sort of try to force them to become Roman Catholic, it was it was a sense that there was a great separation there, <laughs> and um, that's. But uh, on the other hand, I'd say the uh, the normal sort of practice in America, which was the Russian practice for many years uh, of the kind of of putting the Protestants and the Catholics into the uh, category of Christians who are received by chrismation, to me, seems to fit the sense of the canons the best, I would think, but not everyone agrees on that. Now, there is something... Oh, go ahead. I have a question. I know you weren't there when uh, my wife and I were received into the Orthodox Church, but having been most of my life a Roman Catholic, and mm -hmm. having been um, confirmed as a youngster in Catholic yes. school, I just got a very simple anointing. Yeah. Well, my wife had all her her yeah. extremities anointed. So yeah. I have a question. I I I'm not I sure why that. I mean that something that I know that that is done. I don't know why. Uh, or whether there's really. Yeah. But I would say the the uh, the canonical point there was that you were both chrismated, mm -hmm. and that's. Reflecting these canons and reflecting the ancient tradition that Pope Stephen was maintaining. So I I don't know I'm not quite sure myself why they did it that way, but but at least uh, you know in that sense you you both had the normal reception by chrismation. Now another issue has come up uh, in modern times, which um, was addressed during this controversy, and that is what about people who were already received by chrismation, but who either perhaps should have been baptized or want to be baptized. And there's a, there's a movement among some people uh, to say, well, they got, you know, join the Orthodox Church in the jurisdiction that receives by, let's say they're Baptist or Catholic, they're received by chrismation. Then they go over to another jurisdiction that says, well, no, we really think, you know, Protestants and Catholics should be received by rebaptism, and you are only received by chrismation, so you're not really Orthodox yet, and we have to rebaptize you now. Um, it goes on right now. It does go on. Well, this issue is addressed uh, in this kind of the controversy regarding Cyprian uh, in the letter of uh, Dionysius, the Patriarch of Alexandria, in, that's recorded in uh, Eusebius's Church History, where he had someone who was baptized by Gnostics who came to his church, was a member of his church, and then um, when he saw an actual Orthodox baptism, somehow realized that his baptism uh, had not been that, but had been, it goes to, to the bishop and says, well, my baptism was full of blasphemies. 
So it's telling us, okay, this is not just a normal uh, Christian, you know, he's not a novationist, he's coming out of a, a Gnostic group where the service is full of blasphemies. And I was received, you know, I wasn't rebaptized, I, pro- I should be rebaptized. Now, canonically, that person's correct. Yes, he should have been. He should have been received by baptism. But the patriarch says, well, uh, you know, that could be, but you've already now been received, you're receiving communion, you know, you can't be rebaptized at this point. And then the person says, well, but I'm uh, so ashamed I can't even bring myself to enter the church building now. You know, so you have the two of the arguments that are commonly brought forward. One is that, oh, we have to correct what was done, or the person, see, the person's conscience requires that we now baptize them again. In both cases, patriarch says, no, it's impossible. So, um, in fact, people's conscience sometimes bother them because they're being told, oh, you're not really received yet because you haven't, you haven't been rebaptized. But um, what the patriarch is saying there is that, no, that's, that's not true. You, once you're received and you're receiving communion, you are received, and it's not the, the church. The church uh, received you. It may, in this case, he's, you know, it was true, maybe it wasn't done exactly how it should have been done. You were received. You are now a member of the body of Christ. You can't go to being a non-Christian now and be received all over again. And these other these other things are excuses that actually don't don't count in the church. Yes. Which uh, Dionysius of Alexandria, but uh, that's something. That's where kind of a part of this controversy comes up today. Uh, on this, I don't want to change the subject off of rebaptism, but it's sort of connected, and that is, if, uh, I noticed in the uh, the serve. Uh, Half goods service book. She breaks it up. They uh, there are renunciations for the different groups. Yes, come from you like if you're Roman Catholic, you renounce certain things. If you're Mm -hmm. uh, Protestant, you renounce certain things. But I noticed that there isn't anything like that in our little red service book, Father Stephen. And I don't know. I don't recall if you do that or not. But the Jesus process will go through all that. Yeah, that's a a, that's later. that comes about, and I, I think you know that's a uh, a pastoral development of how to when you're when you're receiving someone from another um, another group that's separated to the church because of certain uh, false teachings. That when you're bringing this person to the church, that you want to have it be clear in the person's mind that you know they have uh, now are repenting of those false teachings and. Uh, are embracing the teachings of the church. That's it's just because uh, sometimes you know if someone's living in a place that has uh, you know Lutheran church and then they move to another town and there's Orthodox church, so they say, oh well, I guess I'll join the Orthodox church now because that's the closest to my house or something. You you don't want you know people entering the church are have to be doing so uh, sort of with an understanding of what the church is and kind of a, a desire to be part of the church, and that's all you're doing with that is your uh, you're partly educating the person and, and partly uh, ensuring that there's a sincere conversion. Because the thing uh, that happens in the service book, for instance, if, if you've gone through all that process, mm-hmm. is they're, they're declaring their statement of faith. That yes, point, right. The creeds right up front, right in, in, yeah. in the artifacts before we can come in. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's all I was going to say about the, the rebaptism controversy. Was there any questions on that particularly? Okay, and then just to end up that um, 
Uh, Cyprian was ultimately martyred uh, when a later emperor decided to start arresting the bishops and, and killing them, <laughs> and uh, he was killed with that. Actually, I, I don't know if I mentioned that Origen uh, died in the first persecution, so his, uh, the one who uh, had corresponded with Philip is, was killed by the person who usurped against Philip, uh, Decius, uh, during this. He was, well, he was tortured, and then uh, he died of his, the tortures. But, uh, but okay, any questions at all in general now? Yes. Um, it's the it's the doctrine about what you want to is that the the church that the person is coming from has to be Christian. If it's a Christian group, uh, officially Christian. Uh, some people have said, well, I don't know, you know, in my church, the minister, I don't know what he believed personally, but it's, it doesn't matter in a way what the individuals of a certain church might believe, but it's, but officially, what is that if it's, uh, you know, so Presbyterian church or something that's, yes? Well, I'm just going to say when you're, you're, you're talking to the, this person's being catechized, mm -hmm. what you, you, maybe this is a teenager you were baptized and so forth, but what have you carried in your life, in your relationship with Christ? What are you carrying right now? We need to talk about that. Bring it to the light. Mm -hmm. okay? and, and, and let's, in, in the catechesis process, we look at, the, at, at what the Orthodox Church teaches. Something's got to go. Mm -hmm. And that's the process we go through. You can yeah. see that. Mm -hmm. And then in that process, we think, gosh, you know, that was a really a screwed up group, and I'm not sure where they're coming from. And they start looking at the doctrine of these people around the fringe of that whole thing. Yeah. And we may choose to go through a baptism with this because it was really yeah. whacked out. Sometimes it really depends the person, on the person says, yeah. no, I've had an intimate yeah. relationship with God and so forth, and I may have been dipped with a with a little seashell and so forth, with water and so forth, but I, but I know my baptism was good and so forth. I'm not going to rebaptize them. They're yeah. you know, solid as a rock. Yeah. In general, we go on the... Because, of course, let's say a, a person was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, perhaps then grew up you know, with a totally secular life, it's still that the church that you know, if the church that they they were baptized into was Christian church, we still count that. So we have to also partly you could go by what the person's thinking, but you also have to look at the the, the church that that person was received into. Of course, I say church, uh, but of course we um, we are well. We, we actually what we are saying um, in this in this model here is that the church. Of Christ, okay, Christ of the Apostles, that this church is the Orthodox Church. Okay. That that is, we call it Orthodox, right believing. We could call it Catholic, uh, the one holy apostolic Catholic Church. Um, I know I've taught Sunday school of a place where they say, well, but we also accept the Catholic Church in the Creed, you know, because they take the Catholic to mean the Roman Catholic Church. But no, this is all. We, when we're talking about the Orthodox Church, we're talking about the Apostolic Church, and so what? But what we're not, so in that sense, we're perhaps ex being exclusive. We're not. We don't think that the Catholic Church and the Protestant uh, groups are are part of that Apostolic Church. We do, however, consider them as Christians where they are. You know, Christian teaching, Christian basic Christian doctrine. So. Um, what we're doing is we're taking these Christians and we're now bringing them in to the Apostolic Church. 
you get into real arguments with whether they really are Christian teaching or not, so much heresy stuck in all this. Well, thing. that's right. So but you have, have to go really with the sort of basic traditional. Obviously, there are many uh, ministers of the Episcopal Church, or you know, that that say that teach all kinds of things and believe all kinds of things. But uh, when a person is baptized into the Episcopal Church, they're not being baptized into the particular beliefs of the minister. Um, they're they're being baptized as Christians. So that's how uh, the church examines that. Go ahead. James, I thought at the time it was a canonical thing. I think it was more his, his personal pastoral parameters. He said on the baptism is that if they were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully immersed, he accepted it. If If they poured rose petals over their head and said some groovy thing, then it, it didn't count. You know, that was his uh, way of uh, mm-hmm. kind of... But now I used to think it was canonical that you had to be immersed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But uh, apparently it's much more pastoral prerogative than that. There's a lot more leeway than that. Well, you know, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit part, we um, because that reflects the Trinitarian doctrine, uh, we do want to see that. But the... Uh, whether the full immersion or I mean that's uh, Third immersion versus single immersion. That sometimes I think those are more water sure. the three Yeah, Well, because in the early Christian church, although uh, <clears throat> triple immersion is the norm, uh, the uh, other forms, the pouring, the sprinkling, were allowed in the cases of uh, necessity, and so. If Orthodox Christians can be baptized by uh, sprinkling in, in cases of need, then it's you can't really turn around and say, "Ah, oh, well, this person was not fully immersed, so I don't know if you know they're not really Christians." That's uh, there's some flexibility in the form, although the norm is, is definitely triple immersion. Yes. Anything? Anything else? Okay. Well, that's. Uh,